This is Kathleen Lockyer with the Nothing Tame podcast, where I bring you all things nature-led. Many years ago, I heard a voice say to me, be the bridge. And that's what this podcast is all about, the bridge between science and the heart of nature connection, helping people remember not only that nature can help us, but nature actually makes us, that we need nature to become the fullness of who we are as humans, marrying the best of what our ancestors did for us, engaging with the natural world over millions of years, and being successful in that, and the best of the present, where we have this amazing technology that if we can bring those two things together, we can really look forward to a future that blows our minds. It can be better than we could even imagine. And so these conversations are an attempt to bring you the best of those things, science and heart, with people who have been doing it and practiced and experienced, and sometimes people who are doing it for the first time and having big ahas and excitement about nature connection. And in between the bigger episodes, I have many episodes where I unpack specific elements of why certain things in the natural world support our neurological development in our brains and our bodies, and even our relationships and our ability to communicate. So I hope you'll join me on this journey of the nature-led podcast, Nothing Tame. And if you do like this, if this gives you an exhale in some way or makes you laugh or resonates with you, please do share it. Leave us a review and send us a note about something you'd like us to talk about. Thank you. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, I'm stoked to be here with you, Dan Gardoki. It's been a while. We've tried to do this and we've had some hits, some misses actually, and this is the first hit. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. We've been swirling in the same pond for about 20 years, and I first heard of you through actually um, my previous partner uh, Mac, and he mm-hmm. had talked a lot about you and some of the old crew of the Nature Connection community that I've been involved with, and you have too for a long time. And, uh, and then I started seeing your name in all sorts of places that I hadn't fully noticed it before. Kind of like when we hear a bird for the first time and then start seeing it, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yep. Noticed how much you had contributed to. And um, so thanks for being here with me, Dan. You're very welcome, Kathleen. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. Looking forward to getting to know you a little better and uh, having a nice conversation. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. And yeah, and and I um, doing my research, I noticed that, well, I knew you were the science editor for several um, books and um, what the Robin knows being kind of one of the premier ones. No, that's it. Technically, oh. that's the only book I'm a, I've contributed oh. to a number of texts, but yeah, technically as science editor, that's that's the one. Oh, mm-hmm. OK. All right. Yeah. I thought I thought you did a couple others, but um that's a pretty big one to, there's a lot of science in that. So yeah, to- I did all the audio work on that book too, which was really fun. Worked with a lot of uh, ornithologists and hobbyist recorders and gathering and, you know, even just then, which was now, boy, this, that was, how long ago was that? That was mid 2000s we were working on that. There there wasn't even all the easy access to digital recordings that we have today. So um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> rem- I remember. Yeah, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was... <laughs> 
Yeah, and you, let's see, you, um, you've contributed to several other texts and you have, um, you have the, I loved when I first saw your new business launch, the lead with nature, because I had, I had started the nature led. And then, um, and you know, I, I, I had been trying to explain that to people why I started nature led because there's so much human centric things and really my life, I let nature lead. And so when I saw that, I was just so stoked. I was like, yeah, Dan, Dan's, Dan's right in there. And, and then Mm -hmm. I heard you talking somewhere and I heard you say that you have a parent from Newfoundland. Sure do. Me mother. Yes. Me mother's a Newfie. Your mother and me father. Yeah, My my mom is a mom (laughs) who's fabulous. She's close to me. She lives only a little while, a little, little bit away here with my sister and her husband. And, um, yeah, so she was born and raised pretty much outside St. John's, you know, Petty Harbor and that area. And oh, wow. um, yeah, and then I turns out in in college, I, I met two different professors who had strong ties in Newfoundland. Well, I was at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and I ended up spending a whole summer up there. <clears throat> one of them in, uh, doing some fisheries, kind of anthropo-social, sorry, ecological anthropology research, which is fascinating. A little island called Fogo, which is an island off the island. And then I had a ecology professor who had a place on the West Coast, and I did a field ecology course up there for a few weeks or a month as well. So kind of kind of, you know, I'd been there as a kid visiting a number handful of times, but really fell back in love with it as a young adult. And I have been back a handful of times and plan on going back more because I just love Newfoundland. It's just a gorgeous place. Wow. And what's your connection there again? That's also- so exciting. So my father um, was born in Pointe Gaul and um, and raised mm-hmm. in Pointe Gaul and uh, Saint John out of Saint John's area, and yep. moved. His mother, um, they had they had not quite as happy of a, a story. Um, yeah. They they moved when my father was fourteen. He was the oldest boy in the family, but my grandmother um, was married to one of the, you know, the storied fishermen who would dock his fishing boat long enough to get my grandmother pregnant again <laughs> and then oh, leave yes. mm. and then leave and go down to new bedford um mm. where where it's presumed he actually had another family but um my grandmother was left with six kids to raise you know after the fisheries had collapsed and you yeah. know the the industry had really um taken a, a big hit there and so she when my father was 14 she went to toronto Mm. and worked in a factory until she could save enough money to send for her six kids. And so when my dad was 14, he left Newfoundland. And, um, mm. and I, I feel like really since then, he's kind of uh, always tried to find what he, what he left behind there since mm. he was 14 and, uh, and he's 78 now. But mm. so I, I grew up with all the stories of Newfoundland. I only visited once when I was three, but um, the house that my father was born in and my grandmother was born in, my grandmother was actually one of the tsunami survivors in 1929, right what? there. Yeah, yeah, their house that she was born in and my father, hmm. the same house my father was born in, was one of the only houses, like it's right there, like right on hmm. the ocean, left standing in their village. That's um, wild. Yeah, so my grandmother had all these amazing stories of that day and those Mm. couple of days. And, um, so yeah, so, uh, as my dad says, I'm a half-assed newfie and, 
<laughs> I never really got to spend time there, but my, yeah. my whole, uh, I still have a lot of family there and I'm probably related to you in some way. Cause we're all related from the Island. I'm sure. <laughs> yes, we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But you grew up in New Jersey, right? Sure did. Yeah. 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 My, I'm actually, so yeah, my dad was, um, born and raised in Brooklyn. My mother came to New York City at 19 to help her older sister who just had, uh, as we call them, Irish twins, uh, 13 months apart. And I was there to help her raise those kids and um, that met my dad and at a New Year's Eve party somewhere in Brooklyn. And uh, yeah, he's of Basque origin. So there's out of my family from the Basque country. So it's a very odd mix of Newfies and Basques um, who met in Brooklyn. And yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, they raised, they had my two older sisters and had me just as they moved out to the burbs in suburban New Jersey. And that's where I spent, yeah, pretty much the first quarter of a century in my life. (laughs) First half, more or less. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. My, um, my mother, uh, was actually a debutante from New York city. Oh, my my father, the, the new fee, uh, they met when my mom was working as a bartender for a summer in Nantucket. And my dad was there, uh, fish, you know, he was a fisherman. Yeah. Uh-huh. He went into the bar she was working at and, uh, yeah, that's, that's how they met. Wow. So pretty, pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So we have, yep. we have those two connections, New York and, and Newfoundland. I love it. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Well, I got really excited. I mean, I've always wanted to get to know you more and, and I've, I've been very interested in everything you've done, but what really struck my interest um, was, you know, my area of, of just passion and excitement is understanding how people got to where they are and how mm-hmm. people overcame adversity. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you had adversity, adversity that you overcame, but also understanding really the human development arc. And so whenever I hear a little piece that I want to pull on, Mm-hmm. Oh, I got to talk to that person more. And so I've just, I, I watched, I don't know what it was. I watched, it was um, maybe something you did with Molly Tongas for Audubon. Okay. And, uh, and you mentioned that when you were a kid, you used to make sounds to the annoyance of everyone around you <laughs> and that, that it's just something you did. And then yep. now you've become um, known as, gosh, I, you know, I found all these videos. You're like, uh, you know, you've been interviewed on uh, news things and there's this beautiful documentary, little mini documentary of you. Yeah. Um, I don't know who did that. It's, um, yep. yeah, it's called that? The Birder and it was, it was a media group called King Spoke that was short-lived, amazing guys who came together and did this, did yeah. a number of what they called spirited profiles of I think five or six of five or six people in Southern Maine where I'm based out of. And um, yeah, and I was one of the people they focused on and they had an amazing film crew and we spent, spent most of a day. um, Yeah. Doing all sorts of stuff together. And they came out. Yeah, they did. They do beautiful work. All of their pieces were amazing. I, I actually broke out in tears watching it. Mm -hmm. It was so beautiful and so stunning the way they put that together. And yeah. um, Yeah. And I just, watching that and then all your little YouTubes about, you know, with your vocalizations. And I just, I have a big question that I want to ask you, but before I do, Mm -hmm. I like to ask everybody first, was there a culture of nature or nature connection in your childhood growing up in your home? 
Yeah, I think about that a lot, actually, um, because I noticed when I was a teenager, and I, and I'm I'm I am answering your question, but I'm answering it in relative to what happened next. So when I was a teenager, and I met a high school teacher who had a very strong deep nature connection, things really changed for me. But it was like, so as a as a kid growing up in the suburbs, like we had a creek and a little patch of woods that ran behind the house, which was pretty typical for suburban New Jersey then. But you know, like when we first moved in, one of the first things I did was build a fence, like to stop like you from going to the creek, right? And like it wasn't like it wasn't like, I don't know, there wasn't as much fear as my mind as there seems to be today about kids out in the woods doing stuff. And there wasn't as much like signage and like, you know, police. And all this kind of, but it wasn't really encouraged, but it also wasn't discouraged. It was kind of tolerated in that for me. So we played in the yard. We played in the woods. I mean, we mostly like threw around balls playing sports, but we'd go catch frogs and, you know, we'd kind of sometimes go in the woods on our bikes and make little paths or uh, climb trees of uh, cool vines hanging them off or, or something like that. But honestly, like I didn't know really much about what I was doing, where I was. There was a physical interaction with nature. It was almost like a play space, mm -hmm. which is great. I mean, it was wonderful, but there was very little understanding or connection beyond that kind of physical and had somewhat emotional attachment to like being able to do those things outside as a kid. And, and I have, I can remember distinct, like I can remember crawling on the ice of the little stream and like breaking through and like the really kind of sulfury irony soils. I could still smell that. Like, like, so I have really visceral memories um, or like, like, yeah, I remember once when I was a little kid, I like killed a frog. Cause I was just curious, like what, you know, I was like, Ooh, and I just stabbed it. And I just kind of sat there feeling like, well, that was stupid and mean. Like, why did I do that? And like, just discount. Like, so I had this intense I had a very strong desire to do things in nature and be out there um, without knowing why, but I didn't really have any guidance or understanding of what I was doing or why I was doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was a city boy um, who appreciated nature. My mom grew up kind of wandering, you know, you know, around the hills of Newfoundland, you know, and doing all sorts of stuff, but it wasn't like there was no real structure around it. So yeah. Did, was, she, yeah. did your mom, did your mom have um, any of, did she retain, I don't, can I ask what year she was born? And you don't have yeah. to tell me if she's not okay with that. <laughs> yeah, no, they're both, they're both from the, I think early mid forties. And so okay. most of their connection to nature was practical and subsistence based. They were very poor. She had a big family. Yeah. They'll go out and, you know, collect crannics, little bits of wood to get the fire going in the morning, or they'd go trouting to get fish to eat or yeah. berry picking to make jam. And so they had connections to places that were mostly about sustenance, mm -hmm. but also sometimes just, you know, going out for fun and, you know, playing around, you know, out, out in the fields or going out on the ice to play, pretend they were you know, famous hockey players or whatever, yeah. um, or sliding down the hill. Um, but there wasn't for them too. It was like very practical yeah. kind of connection. Yeah. yeah. As you've gotten more into the nature connection in, in, I imagine in your adult life, yeah. um, have you found that it has pulled out for your mom, how much she is connected to the natural world or is that not happened for her yeah i'd say for most of my family i think which you know i have a very supportive and a welcoming family and um yeah and, and i think my mom like she definitely like starts paying more attention to birds you know as i started to get into that and you know she would ask questions and tell me little stories about things she's seeing and so yeah i think in some ways and then i would often want to hear more of the stories of you know 
you know, when she tell me stories, I'm like, well, where did you go? And like, well, how long will you guys go out for? And like, did you bring anything? And she's like, well, I don't know. We just would eat as we went, you know? And so I'm like, what were you eating? Like, so I started kind of trying to tease out her stories and make them more kind of, you know, I don't know, like more explicitly draw those connections out. Like, well, what were you actually doing? And like, and was it a certain season? And, you know, and, and yeah. it turns out there was a lot of those things. They just were kind of, they weren't necessarily conscious and they weren't necessarily, you know, right. um, scripted or, or yeah, or, or yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I heard you talking on a podcast, um, with, uh, Daniel Vitalis. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and you talked, you were talking a little bit, and I know I've had this conversation with folks in the nature connection world, but about language and how a lot of the people who are deeply connected, they don't have a language for, yeah. Uh, for this yeah. stuff. And, and part of, you know, what us Europeans tend to do is, is put language to things. Um, and language is powerful and it, 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 sure. you know, it can be positive mm-hmm. or negative. And, and I think that's the time we're in is really, I consider myself a translator and a bridge walker, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I see you as doing a lot of that as well and really bridging yeah. people, um, between two worlds. Um, but, uh, but, I, I think that for my dad, and I don't want to make this all about Newfoundland. We should do one. We should do one all about Newfoundland though. Um, But for my dad, you know, he was raised, he was outside. I mean, he was hungry all the time. Right. And so catching his food and going and finding food and doing all that stuff. And so there was a lot of um, meaning and function in the nature connection. It was all about, you know, getting basic needs met. Um, but in that, I don't think he really even understood how much he understood and knew about nature until I started really getting into this world and developing yeah. a language and mm-hmm. noticing how much he'd go, well, yeah, of course that, you know, that's right. like, duh, you know, right. <laughs> and Everyone for a while, knows I, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a while, I called it like the duh factor. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what a lot of, uh, native people who are, are still have their connection and have been allowed to maintain their connection or who've taken it back. Um, also I've heard them talk about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, you know, I, I want to come back to that language piece and how you've learned to translate that for people. Cause I think you do a really beautiful job on all the little videos I've seen of you just talking and being interviewed. Um, mm. But let's start with that big question okay. around yeah. your childhood, you know, so, so you remember that that's what really drew me in here. And uh, so you were a kid and you, you just had this thing that, you know, today people would call it a tick, you know, the way you described it. That's oh. what people, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe you know, I just, I was, I had lots. Yeah. I, I probably would have been on some sort of medication. Yeah, I probably would have been then, diagnosed with something. Yeah. Uh, I have very high energy. I'm still pretty, you'll probably notice in this interview, I'm up, I'm down, I'm looking around, like I have a lot of energy. So yeah. one of the ways, one of the ways I just express that sometimes is just through noise. I mean, literally, I think this morning, I like one of my first interactions with my wonderful wife upstairs was, as she said something, I mimicked her twice. She's like, oh my God, you just can't help yourself, can you? And we've been together for like 27 years, but she's like, you're hilarious. Like, I thank God she thinks it's funny. Otherwise, it yeah. wouldn't have lasted. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it was just a way to, I don't know, be with the world. And it's also for me, a way to just like process what I'm hearing and seeing like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 And, and I think that, you know, 
it's so important that people like you as adults really talk about this because I find so often I have people call me and I'm referred children who Mm. have what I think are amazing gifts yet to be unpacked. Mm. And they've been given a diagnosis or told they Mm -hmm. have tics or, you know, ADHD or something like that. When really what I'm seeing is a gift that's emerging and, uh, and misunderstood. And so when I heard you talking about that, I was like, oh my gosh. So I wonder what your mother did. Like, was Mm -hmm. that, were you admonished? Were you given permission to do that and be that? What, how, how was that treated in your house? You know, I honestly, Kathleen, I don't have a lot of memories. It did actually didn't seem like a big deal to me. Um, no. It's kind of like every kid's different. Like, I don't know. And I think at times I was deaf. I do remember like getting on some people's nerves, but like no particular like specific people or memories, just every once in a while I'd get funny looks or they'd be like, what is, what are you doing? Like, like, like hush or something, you know, like, cause I just be like, just making noises all the time. And like, ever I heard, you know, and um, yeah, but yeah. So I guess it was just like, ah, oh, that's who he is, whatever. Like yeah. it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't like terribly discouraged or terribly encouraged. It just, it just was at least in my foggy memory of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that gives me a lot of information because, you know, as I, as I track, people and, and, uh, adult experiences back to childhood and things. What I'm hearing from you is that you weren't, you probably weren't admonished from it because if you had been, you would likely remember that. And and you would carry some shame around it. You know, shame is a big thing, but the fact that, that you have, that that there has been this evolution for you. And at Mm -hmm. some point, obviously you took that, that noise making of just general everyday noises and you turned that into just a brilliant adult gift that now you're bridging the world to the natural, you know, the, the general population of the world to the natural world in a way that a lot of people can't access yet because today most people have a really underdeveloped auditory processing system and um, myself included, um, you know, bird language has really helped me develop my auditory processing um, for the past 20 years, I used to not be able to carry a tune or really remember mm. a tune or anything. <clears throat> and when I started working with this and then working with kids with this, I noticed that not only was the children's auditory processing developing, but mine was as well. And it continues to. Mm. So when I say that people don't have access, I really mean that they have an underdeveloped system that, that you then making the noises that yeah. sound exactly like the sounds and then giving them that file card that then they right. go out and then they can hear it. That's really powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering at what point in your life, what changed that for you from moving from this kid making all these noises to it starting to transform into this beautiful adult gift? Was there something that happened for you that, that um, allowed that to start to emerge? Yeah, I think, great question. Um, I'm thinking about the transition right now in my mind as you asked the question from it just being this whatever, un- unappreciated gift or underappreciated gift to like, wow, that's really cool. Like, I want to hear more. And I think what happened in the middle was I started to use my mimicry skills as a, as a tool to make connections to birds. 
And I, I literally remember like one of my first ever winter camping trips, I was in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey with, you know, I, I spent 13 years in like private Catholic school. So that was a place where it definitely was admonished. <laughs> Yes, but just about, just, anything, saying, oh, just about everything, <laughs> that's okay, about everything was admonished there, like yes, literally, yes. so it just, it, it wasn't about the mimicry, it was just that I wasn't being completely obedient all the time. Yeah. And um, so I went, so I was camping with like, you know, it was all boys, private Catholic high school, big brothers in black robes, you know, it was like, it was pretty intense, but yeah. we had the school science teacher, John Young, one of my most important mentors, and he took us on camping trips, and like, he let us, and, and when I say took us, like, he would sometimes just drop us off places and be like, okay, follow the tracks in. And like, and we literally had to go five miles, like in the fading light, not knowing where the heck we're going, like no, tracks. What do you mean track? What? And like, so we had this pretty interesting, edgy, awesome adventures. I thought um, in the moment, I wasn't always thrilled, but in, re in re retrospect, they're pretty rad. And I do remember um, one of the first nights I did this, we found our way in after like having to cross a street. I mean, it was crazy cold. It was wacky. We found our camp. We were so hungry. We scarfed out something I never would have eaten otherwise. It was like a lentil stew. You know, my mom would have been so proud. Um, and, um, and then he's like, okay, I was going for a night hike. And I was like, I'll go for a night hike. I've never been on a night hike. And I was like 15. I'd never been on a night hike. So I remember we went out and we would basically just walk a quarter mile or so and just stop and listen. And then we'd walk, you know, and then maybe it'd be some whispering, like, Shh, hear that, listen. And like most of the directions that this mentor gave me in life were listen, which is really helpful for me because I do talk a lot. So that was a good balance for me. And I'm sure that was partially intentional, if not totally intentional on his part. But I also would hear like, and I remember like on the night, like there was obviously wasn't many birds because it was night, but there were a few sounds. And then there were some, there were, I remember it was like, Maybe it was like dusk. I don't even remember, but I do remember that same spot. Maybe it was the next morning, the Carolina chickadees and the black cap chickadees who are both in this spot were doing their, their spring song, which they tend to start to do this time of year, which is January. Can and you, uh, so I was kind of, what's that? Can you do that for us? Oh yeah. It's just about to. <laughs> so okay. often it's like, it's like a three-part of like, or and it's a little wavery like that too. It's not perfectly clean. And I was like, dee, 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 dee. And I was like, whoa, that, and I never heard them make, well, I'd never processed hearing them make that noise. I'm mm -hmm. sure I'd been in the presence of that noise thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of times in my life. Yeah. But I didn't know to listen. I didn't know, like, I just didn't make the connection. And that was a big moment for me because I was like, and so I heard it and I started doing it back. And I was doing back, and I don't even remember if, if anyone was around me or said anything. I didn't really care. I was just like, this is like, okay, I'm going to remember this because I had like the field guide and the picture and I could already see it. And I knew the name from the words in the English language. And, but I hadn't had this like moment yet with the yeah. bird. So now I'm like, oh, here's my moment. Like, I'm yeah, like, I can, we can kind of, and I noticed they got like tilted their head and came a little closer, you know, <laughs> doing all sorts of funny noises and then I was like oh cool like this is helpful like to make these noises and so I did that for a long time I still do it um and then to answer your question it was probably somewhere I don't even know pretty early on um I think when I started when I think might have been even when I took ornithology the study of birds a bird biology course in college my senior year where I met my wife um that in that class, 
um, I would be mimic, I would start mimicking the birds as we saw them. And the, and the teacher kind of like turned his head and would be like, Whoa. like, look, look confused. He was an elderly, sweet gentleman. And he kind of just looked and I, then I was like, Oh, no, like, I, he thinks I'm messing with him. And I'm like, Oh, sorry, Dr. Like, that was me. Like, and he's like, that's amazing. Can you do that again? You know, and then I would do it again. And, and then like people, and then it turns out there was a woman in the class who also was a really good mimic of birds. In fact, she was better than me in a lot of areas. She wow. had more depth and texture to some of her songs. And so we started like, kind of like play competing and like challenging each other. And other people like, oh, so you can do this. Like, and we we're getting along and it was fun, but it was also a cool little edge. It was like a little healthy competition. And over the course of a whole semester together, you know, we had like two class, we had like a two field labs that we had, a, it was a very rich course, a lot of time together. Uh, we taught each other a lot about how to make different sounds, which was really cool. And people in the class, some of them thought it was really cool. Some probably thought it was annoying too. But um, <laughs> I focused, I focused on the positive feedback. And um, so I remember that was that was a, definitely a, a tipping point or like a noticeable shift. Where I was like, oh, this has value. And I, who I also admit, Kate, my wife, who thought it was just the wonder, a wonderful thing. So I was like, great, she likes it. <laughs> I like her. So yeah, that, so I'd say somewhere around there, early twenties, it started to be like, all right, yeah. And then I know, and by then I was already starting to work with, you know, a lot of peers and adults and and kids. Yeah. And you know, I learned pretty fast that with especially little kids, like you can really get their attention by not talking, but by doing things, right? Because they hear talking all the time. So whether it's just playing like an animal, like, and I would do that, I'd crawl around like a bear or beaver, right? I'd jump like a squirrel and then I would sing like a cardinal, you know, and, and they'd be like, who is this person? And it would just grab their attention more. So I started to use it a lot as well as other forms of mimicry uh, in my work with, with children. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually one of the most powerful tools, I think, you know, bird language, even above tracking and, you know, tracking seems kind of inaccessible to kids at first because they don't see the animals usually for a long yeah. time. Yeah, um, unless you get really lucky, you know, um, but the birds are always right there. And and once they clue into just one, they're really I mean, that connection is so ancestral. It's like, you know, millions of years old. And it's, it's right there under the surface and they get really excited really fast. And um, yeah. And then that auditory processing system and, and the vestibular system, which is our sense of balance that I know you're aware of um, uh, you know, those two things are very, just so underdeveloped. And, and once we tune into those things, the birds are everywhere, you know, you can work with them in any setting and then yeah. wherever they go, whether they live in the inner city or out in the country, there's going to be birds right outside their door. And yep. so it's something that they can carry with them wherever they go. Yeah. 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 I like to say, you know, birds are calling us to attention. Like, like mm -hmm. we can use them as that kind of whatever language works for you, like yeah. uh, get out of your busy mind or come to, you know, as mindfulness triggers or whatever they are, but like they're usually present yeah, and they're usually doing something that can, we can put our attention toward. And I think that, yeah, pulls us out of our own sometimes little, when we want to get away from our own little human dramas and challenges and other things, it's a nice break sometimes yeah. um, to be able to tune into something else. Um, give ourselves a little rest before we go back to dealing with what it means to be human. <laughs> yeah. Hey <Yep>. woman. <laughs> mm. Um, so, so I could talk about that particular piece all day long. Um, it, you know, it, it, 
when you think about awareness too, just calling your attention one way or another, or presencing you, like you were just talking about, I would, I just reminds me, I was, I, I watched this video yesterday that someone sent me of, um, and it just really highlighted how unaware people really have become. I, I just was in disbelief. It was a video of this couple leaving their house, walking out of their house, locking mm -hmm. the door and going down the steps. All the while there was a black bear sitting right, like literally five feet away from them, watching them walk out their door, leave their house, okay. lock their door. And they didn't even notice the black bear. And the black bear was even like, what? hello, did you not notice I was over here? I was just, I, I couldn't believe how unaware. And I was one, there was no sound on the video, but I was wondering, oh, I wonder kind of what other sounds were in the environment uh, right, right. with that black bear there, yeah, yeah. you know? if there were, there were any alarms going off or squirrels or chipmunks or anything like that, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I, you know, <clears throat> number one, I'm, I'm, you know, the last thing I'm going to do is judge someone's uh, inattention because I'm guilty of it intermittently oh. myself. But number two, like, <clears throat> you know, one of the first things I really try and when I'm working with the group says like, just remember, like we are in a more than human world and we're one of the only species that's not paying attention to what the other species are saying. Like they're all talking and we're not, they're not always all talking about us, but we are part of the dialogue. Our presence or absence, our behaviors, our movements, our intentions are all being tracked and communicated about around us. But for some reason we've taken a path or not, not all of us, obviously, but most many, including myself and much of my life, you know, was just like, Oh, it's all about humans. It's all about us. And it's just, you know, we forget that there's this whole richer, more than human world. Yes. So it's not, it doesn't surprise me because, um, you know, even if I get distracted, whatever, even on, you know, a typical day for me, I can be, and that's why I love going out with groups and having many sets of eyes and ears and sensitivities to the world because so many people notice, see, hear, feel things that I don't. <laughs> and I'm just like, whoa, especially when I'm in the quote unquote, like teaching role, because I can get into my own little shtick and then kind of forget. And like, I could, I kind of could close off my senses a little bit um, <clears throat> as I'm trying to engage slash entertain slash whatever uh, the group I'm with. So <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. lots of opportunity. <laughs> I think, and I think that, that, that lack of awareness, and I'm, like you said, I'm totally guilty of it myself. I just happen at this point in my life to be blessed yeah. to live in a place where I can't really afford to not pay attention when I walk out my door often, because um, my neighbors are cougar and we do have black bear, but rattlesnakes yeah. as well, a lot of the year, and they'll often be on our doorstep. So, um, you know, I, I have to pay attention when I walk out the door, um, and, and there are times when I, when I have been just totally in my head and I'll walk out the door and I won't be paying attention. I'll hear something, you know, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, I have to pay attention. Um, but, you know, but I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier with our parents and from being from Newfoundland and being from Hungary. And there's, there's a function to having to pay attention that we've really lost. And, you know, that, that, I call that meaningful occupation because I'm an occupational therapist and mm -hmm. occupational therapists use meaningful occupation to talk about, uh, human development. So habilitating people and rehabilitating people and that it's essential to both those things. And mm -hmm. so, um, but nature connection is used to be at the core really of meaningful occupation of everything people did. It, nature connection was absolutely essential. 
And so those th two things are inextricably tied. And so when you remove one, the meaningful occupation, no wonder the other one unravels. And I just saw this week, um, I forget, I think it was in the New Yorker or something. I, don't quote me on that because I'm probably wrong. But, you know, in one of the magazines that I read, um, there was a there was a headline about um, will will people ever have jobs that are meaningful again? And that my heart sunk, not only because of the OT background, but also because I know that's tied to nature connection. And so I can't help but wonder, you know, I know that you've talked about this and I talk about it a lot too, but once you reintroduce the nature connection and awareness pieces and the paying attention to through bird language and people get excited and it's right there under the surface, their excitement and their connection, and they start learning that again and paying attention, they find meaning in that, even if they don't have an occupation in their life that gives them meaning. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of, of that lack of meaning in people's lives can be mitigated by, you know, really listening and connecting with the natural world. Have you found that in the groups you take out? And, um, yeah, yes, I have. Um, and I think that's why when I look at a little bit of the profile of the kinds of people who tend to be drawn to my work and repeat, <laughs> uh, repeat, whatever students, colleagues, friends, they tend to be people who are curious. Yeah. Um, and maybe they don't even know they're curious yet. <laughs> maybe they have emerging curiosity or re-emerging curiosity. Mm -hmm. And when I think about, <clears throat> yeah, I guess, so and this makes me think of a couple of things. Um, so like the birding world, people are really into birds. They, they're, they're trying, like they have found one little focused area and sometimes broader than that, but they definitely have one focused area where they put a lot of time and intention and energy toward it. And so <clears throat> they're really good at picking things out. They're really good at noticing shapes, silhouettes, colors, behaviors, textures, sounds, all these little things that help them delineate and differentiate between different birds, right? And I think those are all practices and habits that are tied in all of our common ancestry as you know, ancient nomadic hunter-gatherers and, and other people living much closer to the land regardless of our culture and even regardless of, I would even say when, um, because the other thing it makes me think of is I spent, you know, I'm an adult onset hunter. I do a lot of hunting, foraging, gathering, fishing, stuff like that. I love um, that term. I heard you say that somewhere else. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, what a great term. Because I didn't have that as a kid. And I think that's part of why I stabbed that frog and didn't know what to do with it. It's many of us, it's still in our DNA and we want to make things. We want to gather things. We want to grow things. We want to feed people. We want to nourish each other. We want to nourish our own selves. And that's a relationship we've had forever. And we're just a couple or many steps disconnected from it today, many of us. Yeah, so um, to me, the kinds, and this, this goes back to your idea of some people just don't have language for what we're talking about. You know, that's why I love having a really, uh, an interesting, diverse class you know, in the part of the country I'm in, you know, it's pretty darn white. So the diversity I'm talking about will be, I get people who show up like, you know, just from like L.L. Bean with their new puffy jacket and their new binox and they want to learn birds. But then it might have an old hunter or trapper or clam, clam digger from the coast who shows up with his nephew or something on a class. And they have this deep knowledge and sense of place. 
you know, but they don't really have language for it necessarily. And then you have these people who know all the science and the language and the ecology, but they don't really have the actual connection for it, but they understand it because they majored in it as a, as a you know, master's degree. And I love that funky interface where I can help try and bridge that gap, right? Because they both have a passion and a connection to be part of something that's more than human, right? And some of them just do it because that's what they always did. And they always grew up doing it, but they loved it and they stuck with it because that guy doesn't need those clams to make a living, <laughs> literally clams I'm talking about here, not money, um, <laughs> or necessarily need to fill the freezer with venison or moose or something because, you know, there is, you know, a supermarket or whatever farmer's market down the road, but it's a tradition and it's a habit. And I think it's more than that. It's not it's just part of how they maintain their connection. And as someone who spends a lot of time during hunting season, just sitting still and listening, paying really close attention, looking for subtle signs, trying to find and follow animals, like it's really intense. It is a practical application, a practical occupation and application of these kind of nature awareness, nature connection skills. Not saying it's for everyone, not saying it's the way, but for me, it really helps. It really helps me put to practice these things. Like I think, you know, this year, my I have two sons, my younger son and I spent a lot of time hunting together, the most we've had yet, which was really nice, his choice this year. Taught them all when they were young, how to do that, how to handle firearms safely, all that kind of stuff, just so they knew it. Um, and they both kind of steered away, did their own thing. And, you know, right now, one of them is interested in steering back and doing spending time with me. So I'm like, great. <laughs> and yeah. so um, we spent a good bit of time together. And I remember this one spot we set up as a little kind of spot to sit a lot near some deer trails. And we spent a lot of really cold, still mornings out there where most of the noise we heard was a little Carolina wren, you know, who would pop over and visit us or the ravens kind of in the morning as they came over the crest of the hill or the turkeys feeding in the distance. And, you know, we have connections to turkey, raven, wren, deer, right? Oak, hickory, hemlock, like all of these other beings we share the land with. Um, because we put ourselves in a space to have to pay attention to them, to kind of shut down our own little bah, 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 and just look, listen, and feel. And um, so, yeah, when I think about, like, I'm grateful that there are ways people can do this. And there's a lot of ways, like, and it's wonderful to watch a lot of, even I'm seeing a lot of young adults who want to get back into really understanding. I mean, foraging is blown up like crazy. I mean, mushrooming alone this year in New England was insane because we had this crazy, wet, funky summer and everyone wants to go out and collect and eat and learn about mushrooms and their healing qualities and all that stuff. So there's a ton of interest um, bubbling up um, in a lot of the areas that to me all just speak to this desire to, to reconnect, right? To remember the parts of what it means to be on this earth, that's more than human. Right. Right. Not that, yeah. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. You're reminding me about, um, you know, the, the phrases you were using earlier, I was thinking about come to your senses, you know, that's one that that's like, yeah. you know, probably been around hundreds of years, but, um, because I I'm a sensory integration specialist. I mean, that's what I've done for a long time. And um, what you're talking about, it, it's just reminding me to really touch on the importance of not just choosing to listen, to look, to, to hunt for mushrooms or to do this or to do that, but really to try to look at everything in the context of the way it relates to each to everything else and to find some, some meaningful doorway and window into that context, because it would be really easy to 
for example, you know, all of a sudden have no chaga left in the world because people yep. don't understand, you know, I'm seeing it on the shelves everywhere and it's freaking me out. I'm like, no, <laughs> yep. no, no, don't buy all the chaga. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, it's a fungus that grows on a tree for those of you who might not know, but, you know, really like how can we, when there is passion and excitement for something new like this, how can we really do that consciously? So we don't end up right back where we were before, you know, when we started to get reintroduced to the excitement yeah. of mushrooms, for example, you know, like yep. let's not like consume everything in one forest because everyone's excited. How can we tie that into bird language and to tracking and to things but also the piece that you're talking about for you, the meaningful piece of hunting and how powerful that's been for you and your sons and for many hunters. I mean, most yeah. of the hunters, I would say, I know, you know, and there's always the exception to everything, but sure. most of the hunters I've known, and my parents lived in Vermont for many years. Um, and I knew, I knew some amazing hunters. Um, they're some of the most connected people I know to the natural world. Um, but not everyone can, can hunt, you know, and not everyone nope. will have a great mentor and not everyone will have access, but yeah. so I always think about, well, what else is another meaningful doorway? And, yeah. you know, that's why I talk about, you know, in school or people for their work, you know, what do they, what are they lacking? Attention is such a big thing, right? People can't pay attention anymore. And it's just because of the world we live in, you know, through no fault of most people's, they can't pay attention. Yeah. But one way to start learning how to pay attention, which is a very meaningful, maybe doorway or entryway, is to start listening to one bird. And that can be almost as meaningful as hunting for your food, because if you are struggling to pay attention at school or work, and you're, you know, you're you're at risk for losing your job or you're not doing a good job. And because you can't pay attention, mm. that's a meaningful task that you have yeah. to learn how to do. And so that's, that's going to be really meaningful for that person. So kind of looking at those pieces, you know, what's the doorway or entryway for each person. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What sparks for me, it's like, what sparks the curiosity in them? Cause I think I've, I'll say, I say a lot, you know, curiosity to me is, is the currency for connection. It's like, like, that's how I work <laughs> with connection is like, if there's some curiosity there, like we're going to have a great exchange. Like I, I can really help people. I feel like one of the skills I've learned over the years, I'm still learning is how to channel curiosity and to broaden curiosity, to bring in what you're basically what I hear you calling ecological thinking, which is how is everything connected here? How does this connect back to me? How does it connect to my water, my food, the, the soil for my grandchildren, like uh, the changing climate, all these things, how are these things connected? Um, and what is my role as this fascinating, interesting species on this planet at a very interesting time? Um, yeah, how does that all come back together? And, and I try, you know, and the last thing I wanna do is overwhelm people with that right off the bat. I think that that's that's a journey. It takes a while to get there and people get there in different ways and come to different understandings. I don't have the answer. I don't know what people should or shouldn't do, but I do feel like I can help them see the context of what it means to live in a more human world, yeah. um, a more than human world, because there's we are consciously or not, you know, we, we are we're having pretty big impacts on a number of things all the time. So, you know, we bring our awareness to that, then we can at least bring some, some, you know, intention and some, uh, yeah, just some more conscious thought towards it 
maybe there's some great, maybe there's some more options. Maybe there's some other ways to do things. Maybe there's creative new thinking there that can help us uh, work out some of our challenges um, and responsibilities, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was just working with, um, I don't work a lot with kids anymore. I did for a long, long time. My wife and I had a good friend, you know, co-founded and led a nature connection group for 20 years and uh, mostly working with kids, but adults too. But just last week I was asked by a colleague to work with her three, with uh, three different like environmental science high school classes in Ohio uh, virtually. And um, it was an interesting opportunity. And she really was wanting me to start. She said, just get, talk about how excited you are about birds, you know, and then like, let's see where that goes. And, you know, and I, I wanted to have to be in context. I wanted like why birds and why do, why do we should even care about birds maybe. And, and, you know, so share some stories, share some pictures, this and that. But over the course of the day, well, first I noticed, you know, which any teacher here knows very well, working with an 8 a.m. group of um, high schoolers, it's really hard. Forget so about it. On, things got a little more interactive and it's hard virtually. Everything's just tough. Tell, tell um, but anyways, the day went on. It was interesting getting more interactive, more interaction with them and just really hearing them like, I was literally showing them like, oh, here's where you guys are on a map. And these three places right here in the last year, there was like over 200 species of, of different birds sighted there. Um, you know, I wonder, you know, it'd be interesting to see like how many of those could you get familiar with and what might each of those little threads that you make those little connections, where might they lead you? Right. Because, you know, as you probably know very well, and many others that, you know, most modern kids today are way better identifying corporate logos than they are trees, birds, or plants in their own backyard. Mm -hmm. right? Let alone like understanding watersheds and, you know, and all these other things that are actually really important because we live in a, you know, a, a bit of a closed system and our resources are finite and, you know, we can only live uh, the way the way we're living right now for not terribly long without pretty big changes coming. So, yeah, yeah it's important that we help people make these connections, at least see these things. So, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I the curiosity piece that you keep pulling out, um, I just want to kind of stop on that for a moment, because one of the challenges I think for kids these days and, you know, getting to be teenagers and then adults is we do see that a lot of people and in, in my profession, especially, um, are not that curious anymore. Um, there's a lack of curiosity and that is a yep. challenge to work with, but, you know, when I track that it, it often starts in childhood, you know, and parents are so inundated with what they're supposed to be doing with their kids and through no fault of their own. Yeah. Um, there's something that I refer to as developmental trauma or occupational deprivation. And those two things go hand in hand, but Gabor Mate, are you familiar with him? No. Um, no. He's a trauma specialist and he, phenomenal. Uh, he's done a lot of work and amazing work in the world. Um, but he says devel uh, developmental trauma isn't just bad things that happened. It's good things that don't. And unfortunately, these days, a lot of good things are not happening for kids yeah. because parents are so overwhelmed. And again, if you're a parent listening, no fault of your own, you know, parents are yeah. inundated with what they should be doing. And often what they're told they should be doing is actually not the best thing for their kid. It's just bad information that's being dealt left and right. But one thing that I see lacking because of that is that, you know, what I call like the thousand, the, the 50 foot journey is not mm -hmm. happening. And that's walking from the front door to the car. 
And I was just this past week, um, I had the pleasure to be with um, four-year-old and, and his father. And, you know, they were rushing to get off to preschool. And he was so excited the moment he walked out that door. There was about a hundred things between that door and that car that he was deeply curious about. And, but there was no time for that curiosity. And so what happens for children and in our neurological system is that over time, every time they're curious and they're told no, there's a shutdown that happens. And eventually, because we are wired for survival, a protective mechanism happens and we start turning off our genuine curiosity. And so it really begins early on. And so if, if you're a parent that's listening to this or a teacher or anybody working with kids, just please try to just even every day, take a moment and follow that curiosity for just one minute and allow, see what happens and see where that curiosity takes you and let that develop because curiosity is born. We're born with it. Um, it's innate, but it can be turned off as a survival mechanism. And, and many, many people through no fault of your own, it's a societal issue, um, have, have turned it down or off. And so, but it can be turned back on and, and, and we see that all the time. Thank you. That's that's helpful, helpful context. And it also makes me think a lot. And I try to be really clear and conscious about this with when I'm working with people. Like I first thing I say is like, number one, you might come here because you think I'm sort of an expert, but I only know what I know. Like I don't even know what I don't know. And I only know my experience. Like, so by all means, like please share your experience, your perspective. And if, if I'm saying something that doesn't jive with you, like, let me know, because I want to hear it. Like, because I, I just, um, that's how I learn new things. So, you know, I am truly curious to hear what other people have to say. And I'm truly curious to get, the, what, what does it look like for them to be curious too? And, um, and I think it takes multiple invitations sometimes. And it takes trying to create a space that feels okay to do that in. And it's really challenging. Like I try and create multiple forums for my students when I work with them virtually and I'll get people who'll be like, I'm just not comfortable posting in this group. And I'm like, okay, well just, you know, like I said, you could just write to me, like, and then we can just do one-on-one and other people who are really happy to just kind of like, well, what do you think? I think I saw this. And, you know, I'm also, you know, one of the things that was kind of, you know, one of the things I was mentored in was to just not always have an answer and to not always focus on or not focus on the answer or to make sure that an answer isn't a dead end. So on that walk from the front door to the car, you know, if, you know, like kids like pointing at the ground, going, oh my God, look at that. I'd be like, oh, that's a sow bug. Let's go. Like, like what? Well, what do we know about a sow bug? Like sow bugs are crazy cool. Like, and like, but if the parent doesn't know that either, then like, you know, so, well, you know, one of the things I would often tell people is just build, like literally build schedule curiosity, like build in, if the drive to preschool or the walk to the bus takes 12 minutes, give yourself 20 or 15, like yeah. just like if the drive, like when I drove my son to preschool, I would, I would often try and take a different way, like a little, even just a little bit or pull over on the side of the road and just look at the stream. Even if we never saw anything, we would just pause and we just look at the stream. I wouldn't even say anything half the time. And one <laughs> day we saw, that. one day we saw a mink. One day we saw a fox. Most days we saw nothing. And he would just kind of be like, what are you doing? I'd be like, just look at the stream. So I was curious, like, could there be something here today? And usually there wasn't. So, you know, sometimes you have to fake it till you make it. You got to role model. You got to try being curious, practice being curious. Yes. And I think especially for parents, grandparents, caretakers, teachers, like we know how important it is. So we can fake it because it's about someone else's development, right? Like, but you're, you're going to get the benefits yourself too. Like, 
and even challenging what we think we know. I actually think we live in a time that's pretty, I think it's ripe with opportunity to be curious because so many damn people are so sure that they're right about things. <laughs> it doesn't do us well at all. I really don't think it does. Like, where does that ever get us? Like anyone who's tried to get any sort of debate or dialogue with someone, especially online, knows coming in with an answer or the way to do something never freaking works. So <laughs> What if we just approach this world that where everyone's so certain that this person's evil and this person's great and this is like with just a little bit more curiosity, open-mindedness and looking at, you know, other ways. I don't know. There's there's some potential here. I think it's it's potentially a really good time to let go of like really strongly held beliefs. Not that you don't, you know, change the core of who you are, not that you don't compromise in your values, but always being certain, you know, one thing I've learned in the world of wildlife tracking, which I love, is that always and never pretty much don't exist. Like there's so much variation in the stories of animals and that includes us. Like just when we think we figured someone out, just when we think we understand somebody, something goes on differently. And we may be amazingly pleasantly surprised or terribly disappointed. Yeah. Like we have a choice of how we respond in that moment. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't feel like a choice because we're emotionally just overwhelmed and shot and just can't, we don't have the capacity. Right. But like, we're going to be surprised <laughs> all the time. Like it's, it's, things are going to always, yeah, it's, I guess what I'm going on here is that, you know, there's always, there's always lessons that, um, the, you know, you know, humans are part of nature. And, and when we look at them, that's why I call it a more than human world because humans are part of this natural world. There, there's just so many unknowns. There's just so many questions and everything is evolving and changing as it always has. And it probably is always will. And that's a difficult, that's a difficult concept for people to grasp. For some people, it's very uncomfortable. I mean, it, you know, to not really know with a ton of certainty, like what is, what is <laughs> whatever, good, right, wrong, the, the way we should do this. Like, Obviously, we have to make decisions. We're going to do what we do. Um, but I think there's some opportunity um, to to be a little less rigid and firm and tight about about what we think is, um, yeah, good, yeah. bad, right, wrong, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, and and the more we connect with the natural world, the more that we see that that that's the natural order of things. You know, there's the natural world is constantly changing and shifting yeah. and, making and, and teaching us those lessons. And, you know, when, one uh, one species gets pushed a little out, another species comes in that, yeah. you know, I mean, there's just so many different variations and, you know, you think, you know, one species and then you see it somewhere else and you're like, that's not that species. And then mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, Oh, I guess it is, you know, yeah. and there's, yeah. there's just curiosity is, is mm -hmm. to everything really. It's fascinating right now, Kathleen, because like a cool little case study is we've had this very, very rare sea eagle cruising around where I live. I'm up, like I said, Maine, traditional Wabanaki territory along the Atlantic here, what we call the Gulf of Maine today. And it's uh, this bird is usually five, seven thousand miles away. You know, the northern sea of Okshtok, wherever you say that, you know, Kamchatka Peninsula, north of Japan, rolling around on pack ice. It's one of the biggest, most... Uh, you know, just stunning, large, fascinating, striking, rare birds of prey in the world, you know, weighs over 20 pounds and have over eight, eight and a half, eight and a quarter foot wingspan. Like it's a month. It's a beast of a bird. First, you know, one of the, one of the only documented cases of it 
you know, the, by people who document them today, at least. <laughs> I'm sure there's been others who've made their way here. But uh, this is pretty special. It's pretty unusual. And so birders, people who are way into birds, are like losing it. They're so excited to go get a glimpse of this bird, to just be in its presence, frankly. Like, and some, and some people are like, oh, well, they're just, they're, they're hungry or greedy. I've heard all sorts of funny approaches. Like, oh, they're going to scare the bird away. But people have actually been pretty damn well behaved, I will say. I've been twice now to see this bird. It's moving around a bit. There's a lot of cool cooperative uh, things going on with apps and people sharing and helping people see the bird and sharing binoculars and scopes and local businesses opening up to feed people coming in from, you know, because it's, it's, it's not tourist season right now in Maine. It's, it's ice and cold, <laughs> snow, wet season. So yeah. places opening up, people, oh, you can get a warm soup over here. Oh, go support this business. They've been letting us park in their lot, yada, yada. But there's so much curiosity about this bird. So much, so many questions because it's not following the rules. It's not doing what it's supposed to. Love it. You know, and I'm, and that's something I say a lot is like, you know, animals don't read the field guides. Like they don't read the books to tell you, like they're just doing what they're doing. Like, and you know, people, is it going to be okay? Right. So there are all a range of concerns and fears and, and emotions that we just project onto this story. It's fascinating, including my own, which is curiosity and excitement. So, you know, I project that onto it. But um, and then there it is. It's just doing what it's doing. We don't know how long it's going to be here. It might be up and gone tonight and end up in who knows. I mean, it could go wherever it wants. Uh, people are, you know, but it's fascinating to see um, my wife and I were watching it. This it was about 25 below zero Fahrenheit with the wind chill. Uh, but the sun was out and this bird is just perched up in this tree. You know, it's normally in places like this, so that we weren't worried about that. It had its back to the wind, a little bit of a wind block facing the sun. And we're watching it. And, you know, you could barely look in the scope long enough without your eyelashes kind of freezing or the condensation from your breath sticking your face. Like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. But, you know, I kept saying, oh, if you guys want to use the scope, you know, locals are walking up, you know, and. And, and this owner of like an, an inn or general store came by and she's like, thank you guys so much. You've all met so friendly. Like, I'm not really into birds, but I figured I, I got to go look at this thing because everyone's talking about it. And they're all coming into my shop. And um, because that's because I think it's really neat that you you're all just paying attention to these birds. Like, because I wonder what I could learn from that. Like, literally, <laughs> it's just yeah. this great moment. Right. And all these people, like a lot of local you know, kids home from college, like all sorts of stuff, you know, people just working downtown. And then there are people hustling like, oh, we're going to open up our shop. Hey, here's our dinner menu tonight. Come on by. <laughs> but it just formed this instant community of like, you might call them eagle appreciators or bird nerds, but they really were just humans who were connected to this bird in this moment. Um, mm -hmm. It's fascinating. That's, that's that really, and the bird is a, is it a Stellar's sea? It's called the Stellar's sea eagle. Yeah. Yeah, which fascinatingly was a bird I saw in a book when I was 16 and I had dreams about it so often. I still remember the dreams. I never thought I'd see the bird in life. Like I'm not the kind of person who, well, I don't have the resources, the means or the desire to fly around the world to see one bird. Um, so I never thought I'd see it. Um, so when I heard it was here, I was like, okay, I want to go look for this bird. Oh, I just uh, got goosebumps. Yeah. And it did not disappoint. Like, ah, it was just, it was just, yeah. I mean, when you see a bald eagle next to it and the bald eagle looks like you know much smaller <laughs> or a big raven looks kind of like a dinky bird next to it you're like wow that is a huge bird and striking colors a big thick yellow bill and strong yellow feet and this white bar across the back and it's it's yeah it's pretty looking oh it's it's a yeah it's fascinating it's it's a formidable looking bird <laughs> yeah and, um, yeah really really great really captured people's attention here yeah. um 
And I like those moments because to me, they really illustrate that many people do really have a desire to be more connected to that more than human world. But like you're saying, unfortunately, we're forgetting that there's also all this amazing stuff literally out our front door, literally the nearby nature that it's so easy to become dull to or numb to, um, maybe because it doesn't have an eight and a half foot wingspan. But, you know, the little sparrows right outside your house have a ton to teach us about cooperation, about survival, right, about making good decisions, about like sacrifice, about hard work, like, and they're right there, right? They're just not big and sexy, but I think they're pretty cool. <laughs> I think I think there's a lot of little sexy birds, you know. Oh yeah. It's all <laughs> yeah. Relevant, right? yeah. Oh my gosh, I love that you brought that stellar seagull. Yeah, I've been following that, and I probably first heard about it because I follow you. Mm. Um, and then you, they did a little clip. One of the local news stations uh, had you on to talk about it. That was a yeah. great clip. Can you just give us us uh, the vocalization of like a bald eagle and then the stellar sea eagle? I'll try. Yeah. So uh, one of the most common noises we hear from a bald eagle is kind of like this downward little slur, uh, stuttered whistle like a let's see hold on kind of like that and then the stellars though has it's a similar pattern but it's much more like primordial it's like a <laughs> i can't i can't even get this like <laughs> yeah it's like <laughs> yeah i've never heard it vocalized to be fair it hasn't made a noise and it's been here I think they're more vocally when they're so they're more socially vocal. Um, uh, so I've only I've only heard a recording of it. So I'd love to hear it vocalized in person uh, as well. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's mostly just quiet too, which makes it even more fascinating and mysterious. Wow. Just quiet, quietly surveying the world around it. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could talk to you all day. There's so many more questions I have for you. Um, the one thing that I do want to just I hope, I hope you have a couple more. Do you have a couple more minutes? Yes, I do. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you were just talking about parenting and all the things yeah. that, that the birds teach us. And I heard you say in some, something else that I listened to, um, that birds teach you patience and parenting. And I was so stoked to hear you say that because I do a lot of bird language with parents and I have one course that, um, that'll be teaching, probably this summer again, um, that's, uh, that's, um, learning about child behavior through the voices of the birds mm. and oh. people are like, what, how do you do that? And when I heard you say teaches you patience and parenting, I was like, oh, I knew Dan would get this. And, uh, can you, can you just elaborate a little bit about how the birds teach you a little bit about parenting? Yeah, not that I'm always getting the lessons and, <laughs> and reproducing them successfully, but um, so I think one of the first things, the first time I ever watched a pair of chickadees build their own nest blew my mind. Number one, I didn't know those teeny, teeny little microscopic bills were used to often excavate, I mean like dig out a big hole in a rotten tree, and that I can take them sometimes two weeks at a time. I only knew this because at the time I was part of a practice of sitting in this kind of like the same spot and hanging out there. We called it a sit spot practice and just kind of seeing what happens each day. So I would go there and be like, oh, and one day I noticed the birds. And then I was like, oh, they've got little fluffy, woody junk in their mouth. And then like, oh, they're carrying it and dumping it somewhere else. Oh, wait. And the next day I thought I'm going to bring like binoculars or something, which I kept forgetting, but I could still see they're going back and forth to the same tree. Anyway, about two weeks, they made this hole and they were just persistent. 
And like, just, and it made me think about like before we had our first child and like trying to get ready to have a child and all the things you're trying to learn and prepare and whether it's literally like the, the, the room or the crib or the diet or the, you know, whatever the connections, the family support net, whatever it is. And then like, you know, I stayed in, I was there through most of their, not all the season because it got crazy buggy <laughs> and the bugs just like were eating me alive. So it wasn't there as much when they were raising the young, but I knew right where they were. And so I would cruise carefully, kind of cruise by, not being too obvious, not trying to draw any predators to that nest, but I would kind of walk by and kind of keep an eye sideways on what they're up to. I would listen from further away. And man, it's just a lot of hard work. Like, and I think like it's, I remember as a new parent myself, I was surprised by how intense the workload was, how constant the workload was, because frankly, I'd never really had a really close connection, especially being the youngest child. Like, I don't know. I just didn't, I, I, would, I lived a very pretty privileged, small little world. Right? I didn't understand like the intensity of raising children, but like hanging out with those birds, it's really obvious. you know, like in most, just, you know, many birds, many mammals, many other, uh, you know, certain species do different things, but the ones who actually actively raise their young to the point where they can be on their own, they're role modeling. I'm watching it and they have to be super, super careful. They've got to take turns incubating. They got to keep those eggs really warm. They got to feed each other. Right. So as opposed to maybe me being a newborn dad the first time and being like almost, I don't know, like getting selfish or almost like spiteful be like oh god now i get a break but i've got to go do, do something for my wife like like just stupid stuff like that like of course you do that's how things survive if you don't work <laughs> as a team it doesn't work stupid <laughs> come on so i think in many ways just that hard work that persistence that cooperation um that kind of tag teaming that it takes and including like looking out for trouble right and then when i think about like how like raising kids and how birds are just really good at discerning behaviors and communications. And I remember like as a new parent, really being hyper aware of like me judging so many other parents and how they were raising their children, even though I didn't know I had all these preconceived <laughs> biases and notions, right? Like, it's like, it was like, why am I so judgy? Like, I'm like, God, that person just never stops telling their child, good job, good job. And I'm like, oh my God, I want to sprinkle you. Like, just let the kid do its thing. Like, don't, ah, that's not going to go well. Who knows, right? Whatever. Or, you know, I just was so judgy. Um, or like anytime a kid made a noise, oh my God, are you okay? And I was like, oh my God, let the kid be. And I realized I was just like, in my mind, those judgments were coming from like watching a lot of wild mammals and birds and like, they're wrestling and they're playing and they're fighting and they're doing their own thing. And like, and the parents don't have the time, energy, attention, my judgment, time, energy, attention, or interest of getting involved in every little thing they're doing. They're letting them have their space. They're letting them figure things out. They're letting them play. They're letting them get dirty. They're letting them fight. They're letting them whatever in many ways, but then they're there to care for them to when they need to be, when it's really important. Um, so that just was like really interesting to me. And obviously we're going to interpret and layer our own experience on anything. And there's bias in there, but I think watching other than humans raise families, be parents, their children, like there's, there's lessons to be had. Those species have been on this planet way, way longer than we have. Yeah. Yeah. They've got, they figured something out. Doesn't mean that's they're great and they're perfect and it's right. They're not us. We're not them, but there's something there for us. Yeah. So I think that's what I was referring to. Yeah. I like to say that the wild species still have an unbroken lineage, whereas most, most humans, our lineages have been broken at some point in time, one way or another. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. But the natural world, you know, there's a lot of species that that's not true for and a lot of birds, especially. So yeah, I love that. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So before we wrap up, can you, do you have a favorite bird vocalization? People probably ask you all the time. Um, I have so many. So most of your people who might be listening to this, where might they be in the country or in the continent or in the world? Any actually people kind of listen from all over. Um, okay, cool. you know, yeah, I just figured I'd ask. Um, well then I think I'll just go with the, I mean, in, in, on this continent, we call North America today, turtle Island known by others, uh, probably one of the most common abundant and like in your backyard, like that first 50 feet bird is often an American Robin. And it's, so it's a bird that's taught me so much for so long and a bird I continue. Actually, today I was looking for them because we don't have a lot in winter. They're here, but they're quiet. Yeah. And they're up on the tops of trees and they're hidden in the swamps and they're in all sorts of other places. Yeah. But that first chorusing that I hear in the spring, it just like starts to thaw the winter out of my heart and kind of brings them to life. And it's just like, ah. And so that sound and the smells that go with it, it's just this chorusing like, And just hearing many of them do that again and again and again, as the sun's going down or the sun's coming up or whatever, they just get so fired up. That's a special sound to me. So thanks, Robin. Oh, it was so, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to tell that that wasn't a Robin if I wasn't watching you. That's amazing. (laughs) It's real. No devices. (laughs) Can I ask you to do one other sound? Oh, you could take a handful. I don't care. I'll do a handful of them, whatever. Oh, good, good. There's this one sound that I just, I don't know. I'm so fascinated Mm -hmm. by it. It's when the ravens make that water drop sound. Oh gosh. Yeah. I love it so much. I was going to say the, the, the only caveat would be I'll I'll make any sounds I can. Uh, yeah, it's, I, there's so many raven sounds, but I am familiar with the weird, almost liquidy metallic-y thing. I can't even do it. It's like, but it's like, it's like rolling and echoey. Like, yeah, I can't mimic that sound. I currently, I currently cannot mimic that sound. Okay. You got to work on that one. Next time we talk. I'm not going to, I'm not going to guarantee that's going to happen, but, uh, I appreciate your, uh, your exuberance. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many sounds I'm working on. It's just like, Oh my God. I know. Uh, how about, um, how about the, um, Oh, now I'm drawing a blank on it. It's, it's like right here outside my window all the time. I'm drawing a complete blank. Uh, well, let's go with, you don't have Oak tip mice there, right? You have, you have a tufted tip mouse. Yeah. We don't have the oak, uh, and you have the bridle too, don't you? Or are those oh, different? No, they, I think they're higher elevation or something. So here, here's what I do when people ask me this. So this is my process. I already looked up oak tip mouse. So here, I'm going to listen to a sound. So tell me which of the sounds you're interested in. Is it like that? Or maybe that, oh, one. that one? Yeah, that, one. that sounds a lot like, so locally, we have a tough tip mouse that goes. And yours is, wow, yours is fat. It's like. The three parts, how would you, what would you give that? If you gave that a little mnemonic, what would it say oh, in your gosh. mind? See, this is where I'm not very good at the mnemonics. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like peachy, peachy, peachy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I always hear it almost as like a Peter, 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 almost mm-hmm. like a, but it's like, not quite, you know, it's like more like a. Ass. Like, yeah. Show me with your hand. What is it doing? Yeah. It's like a. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah all right i'll work on that one that's fun because i don't 
we don't have them anywhere around here. So I'll often just listen to it, listen to it, like then try and, ooh, that's, was, that, was that one particularly fast? Or are they usually that fast? No, they're pretty fast. They're okay. Pretty fast. Do you see, do you see what's happening behind me? I don't know. Oh, am I calling them in? Uh, well, there's a oak tip mouse actually hitting the window. Oh, yeah, All right, yeah. well, I'll, I'll, I should probably stop then. But this, this, this little guy has been doing that for, for like a couple okay. months now, you know, he's, That's... he's, like, he's in love with himself, I think. Okay. But, uh, yeah. How about, um, an olive sided fly catcher? Oh gosh. Yeah. It's been a while. Um, kind of like that. Isn't it? That three one? Yeah. 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 We have, we have those hang out here all the time too. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen one of those in a while. They fly, they migrate through here, but they don't breed where I am. So yeah. I don't, it's rare to get to see or hear one right here. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm, it's, it's cool how I've been able to develop, you know, my auditory system over the last 20 years, just since, you know, really since I met John and, mm -hmm. and he introduced, you know, he and his crew and you included yeah. introduced me to this idea of, bird language and i had always paid attention to the birds and the woods but um but really focusing in on particular sounds i'd love to yeah. pull that more out with you another day but um yeah i think i like i said i could i could talk to you all day long for for weeks and weeks i'm sure <laughs> and uh we'll have to do a whole one just on newfoundland <laughs> fun that'll be fun yeah Oh, thank you so much. Um, so you, what do you have coming up next for people? Oh boy. So many, I was, oh my gosh, in New Jersey, when I saw you were doing like a winter thing, I was like, well, how, I actually looked on my map. I'm like, how far of a drive <laughs> from here to where he is? Yes, Could I yes. do it for a couple of days? I, I was like, yeah. just close to maybe trying to make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, uh, ways people can engage with me. Um, I, yeah. So I do some, I do virtual classes, do online classes. And this spring I will be doing what we've been calling bird language today. I kind of rebranded as talking with birds a few years ago. Nice. So it's really not like you, I mean, in some ways you're learning a language, but actually you're just remembering what it means to be engaging with other species. So you're talking with birds, which means you're talking with the rest of the natural world too. Um, so anyway, I'll be teaching a class on that this spring. I think my next section starts in April or something. Uh, but there's, if you go to leadwithnature.com or follow me on Instagram or Facebook, Lead With Nature, you can see more about what on YouTube. I have the Learn A Bird series, uh, which is really fun, as well as some other videos on there. It's just Lead With Nature on, on Facebook. I mean, on, uh, yeah, on YouTube. But yeah, you can check that stuff out. Uh, I'll be doing some, I'm doing a weekend intensive in New England in the end of May or April call talking with birds. It'll be my first like multi-day in person in a long time. Uh, uh, I'm focused on that topic, but I also do a ton of stuff around wildlife tracking and following animals and learning their stories and, you know, different substrates. Right now it's snow. So I've got some nice adventures in the mountains doing that coming up. Um, yeah, all sorts of little things, lots of day, lots of day things around here, local things. And then I'm also available. I do a lot of, I do a lot of consulting and training and mentoring. Um, distance with all sorts of folks, whether they're, you know, small businesses, nonprofits looking to make different transitions or looking for some structure and guidance. I really enjoy, I bring my curiosity to the world of uh, being an entrepreneur, <laughs> as well as using nature as a metaphor there. I really enjoy helping people, uh, you know, grow, develop, expand, uh, hand off their, their businesses, things like that. So yeah, there's 
I'm doing, I do a lot. <laughs> I'm busy. Yeah. yeah. And you had mentioned yeah. that you co-founded, um, you didn't say the name of it, but white yeah. pine program. Yeah. Right? Yeah. White pine programs here in Southern Maine as well. Yeah. And, and they're you, still going strong. Yeah. Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. so when you, um, when you say that you, you consult, you, it's not yeah. just, not just the nature connection stuff. You, oh, work no. with, you coach people in um, business pieces too, <clears throat> right? Yeah, sure do. Yeah. Really enjoy that part. I've always enjoyed the, that, you know, the, I actually love combination of like creating culture, understanding admin structures, and thinking about kind of content and how we conduct ourselves with each other and all that stuff, the complexity, the challenges therein, but um, also a great opportunities on how to integrate some of these things together. So, Great. Is there anything yeah. that uh, we didn't touch in that you wanted to share with people before we say goodbye today? No, that was great. Thank you. Yeah, it was a great yeah. conversation. I really yeah. enjoyed it. And I hope we get to do it again. Excellent. Thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate your interest. And uh, it's fun to get to know you a little better. All right. Well, stay warm out there. And maybe if I get lucky, I'll, uh, I'll get to come and join you in one of those intensives. That'd be amazing. That'd be fun. All right. Sweet. All right. Thanks, Thanks. Dan. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>you will see me there. Uh, also, you can find all kinds of other online learning for Dan. You can go to YouTube and search his name. I'm including the link to that beautiful documentary we talked about, The Birder, in our show notes here. And if you'd like to learn any of the nature-led experience or approach, please go to our website at rxoutside.com and see what else we have going on. Have a beautiful day.